0: Article 32 of the Belgic Confession, on page 70. The Order and Discipline of the Church. In the meantime, we believe, though it is useful and beneficial, that those who are rulers of the Church institute and establish certain ordinances among themselves for maintaining the body of the Church yet that they ought studiously to take care that they do not depart from those things which Christ, our only Master, has instituted. And therefore we reject all human inventions and all laws which man would introduce into the worship of God, thereby to bind and compel the conscience in any manner whatever. Therefore we admit only of that which tends to nourish and preserve concord and unity and to keep all men in obedience to God. For this purpose, excommunication or church discipline is requisite with all that pertains to it according to the word of God. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in Articles 30 and 31 of the Confession, we saw that the Confession is very insistent that the church be governed by that spiritual polity which our Lord Jesus Christ himself has instituted. We saw, for example, that Christ has established offices in the church, and that we are not, therefore, to um, invent other offices. We saw that Christ has made parity between these offices, equality between the members in these offices, so that the Pastors are all of the same authority wherever they are, and the elders uh, are all of the same authority wherever they are, and and so on. They uh, do not have one elder above other elders, one pastor above other pastors, and so on. Well, now when we get to Article 32, the Confession takes a turn and uh, acknowledges that it is also necessary for the church for the rulers of the church to establish certain ordinances which are not directly derived from the scriptures those other ordinances that we were talking about in chapter in articles 31 and 32 and or 30 and 31 and even before that are ordinances that Christ himself has clearly established for his church and we are bound to obey them, but there are some additional ordinances which are also necessary. And these ordinances are not derived directly from the scriptures. And what the confession does then is acknowledge the existence of the need for such ordinances and also lay down certain principles by which these ordinances are to be established. So we're going to look at the kind of ordinances the Confession is talking about in this article. Then we're going to look at the principles which the Confession lays out in the article for the establishing of these ordinances. And finally, we're going to look at the uh, subject of Christian discipline or excommunication in connection with them. As the Confession says in the last part of the article, for this purpose, excommunication or church discipline is requisite. So let's begin then with the kind of ordinances the Confession is talking about here when it talks about ordinances that are not directly derived from Scripture but which are nevertheless necessary for the maintenance of the life of the church. It's important that we recognize from the very beginning with regard to these ordinances that where the Scriptures do speak we are bound to obey. We have already seen that they speak about the offices and the parity of ministers, and they speak about the work of the church and the marks of the church, the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of discipline. And where the scriptures speak, we are bound to obey. Another example of this kind of ordinance is the ordinance that only men are to serve in the offices of The church. This is a scriptural ordinance that the Apostle Paul lays down in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, Women are not to teach and are not to have authority over men. We are bound to obey these kinds of ordinances which the scriptures establish for the life of the church. And we may not change those ordinances to suit ourselves or to do what we want to do. But there are other ordinances which are necessary even and beneficial for the life of the church, where the scriptures do not speak directly. And in those things, the confession is saying it's uh, necessary and good that the rulers of the church institute and establish such ordinances. And what I want to do in order to get at what the Confession is talking about here is give examples of the kinds of ordinances that the fathers may have had in mind here. Some of these uh, examples are relatively insignificant kinds of examples, but they illustrate the point, and others of them are actually of uh, fairly uh, great significance in the life of the Church. On the side of those things which are somewhat uh, unimportant or relatively insignificant. We may, for example, mention times of worship. It's necessary in order that the congregation be able to gather together for worship on the Lord's Day, that times for worship be established. And the rulers of the church, the elders of the church, uh, appoint certain times on the Lord's Day on which we uh, come together for worship. The scriptures have nothing to say specifically about the times of worship that are to be observed. This is free according to different churches and different circumstances at different times. So in a farming community, for example, it may be better to have worship at a different time than in an urban community in one country. It may be better to have worship at a different time than in another country and so on. These times of worship, nevertheless, are necessary for the orderly life and for the worship of the church. Another example of these things, these relatively insignificant ordinances, uh, is uh, the taking care of the financial affairs of the church, paying the bills, maintaining the property, and so on. Now the scriptures don't tell us who has to do that work, and the scriptures don't uh, uh, lay down any specific rules in that area. And so the churches are free to do as they want in this area, I think. They can appoint a treasurer, they can give it to the deacons, they can uh, do what uh, they feel is uh, best for the congregation at any specific time or in any specific place. But those are relatively unimportant matters. There are other matters, I think, where we might say, well, this is quite an important matter. This is a matter of great significance. And yet, the church has to make certain rules, certain ordinances for even these things. For example, order of worship. Now, let's, of course, acknowledge right off the bat that there are certain scriptural principles that apply to worship. The scripture's make very clear to us what kinds of things we are to do in worship. They teach us that we are to read and preach the scriptures, They uh, that we're to have prayer, that we're to sing the Psalms, that we're to um, have the administration of the sacraments, that uh, we are to have a benediction of the people according to the example of the priests in the Old Testament who blessed the people at the house of God. There are biblical uh, instructions about what's to be included in worship, and we may not exclude from worship any of those things which the scriptures teach us must be included. And, of course, there are other principles such as our conduct in the house of God. We must be careful, of course, to conduct ourselves in a way that shows our reverence for the God who is so great in majesty and glory, and, and so on. There are certain biblical principles then that apply to worship, and we may not change or add to those principles according to our own will. But the scriptures do not lay out for us a specific order of worship. And so the question of how many psalms we're to sing, and at what points in the worship service, How many times we're going to pray together in the worship. And so these are things that are left up to the individual congregation. And this is a fairly significant matter. But the scriptures don't lay out a rule in this regard. They may show us a general pattern for our approach to God in worship. Such as the pattern of confessing our sins and receiving his forgiveness and um, seeking his blessing on his word when it's read and preached and so on. But the church can do these things in different ways at different times and not violate the scriptures. How meetings of the rulers of the church and meetings of the congregation are to be conducted is another matter. Generally speaking, in our Reformed and Presbyterian traditions anyway, we uh, conduct these meetings according to Robert's Rules of Order. But that doesn't mean to us that Robert's Rules of Order are uh, directly derived from the Scriptures and that this is the only way that the uh, meetings can be conducted. There might be different rules for different congregations in different times and places, and even within Reformed and Presbyterian traditions. The scriptures don't tell us what are the specific rules for the conduct of such meetings. We establish such rules in order to maintain order in these meetings. How much the pastor is to be paid, or even how he is to be paid. The scriptures lay down the principle, of course, in 1 Corinthians 9, that the Preachers of the gospel have a right to earn their living from the preaching of the gospel. But the scriptures don't define specifically for for us what it means to earn a living from the preaching of the gospel. Nor do they say that the pastor has to be paid money for that. Perhaps in certain countries, especially perhaps poor countries, the pastor may be supported by gifts of food and clothing and shelter from the congregation. And that would be perfectly legitimate as long as the congregation is allowing him to exercise his right to earn a living from the preaching of the gospel. What songbook is to be used? We have all kinds of different versifications of the psalms. The scriptures don't teach us that we must use this particular versification or these particular musical settings for the psalm. In what specific ways the elders are to oversee the life of the congregation? In our tradition, we have family visitation, where the elders visit the, every family in the congregation once per year. And we have specific elders and deacons assigned to specific groups within the congregation, set shepherding groups, we call them. And these are good practices to follow, but they are not practices which the scriptures dictate. They are rather our way of establishing ordinances to be sure that the elders and the deacons are fulfilling their responsibilities to us. How the elders are to guard the table of the Lord. The table must be guarded, of course. It must be kept from profanation by those who uh, should not be partaking by unrepentant sinners and so on. The elders have a a very important responsibility in that regard, in guarding the table of the Lord from being profaned, from the misuse and abuse of holy things. But the scriptures do not lay out for us the specific procedures that are to be followed for the guarding of that table. We like the procedure of attestations for visitors, attestations from their elders or pastor or whatever. But that's not the only possible way for such a guarding of the table to be done. So we have these ordinances, ordinances that the rulers of the church make for the orderly life of the body of Christ, for the maintenance of the body, things that are useful and beneficial for the body. But we have to recognize that they can vary from place to place and from time to time because they're not specifically laid out for us in the scriptures. We may even say with regard to these ordinances, many of these ordinances, they are necessary. The church can't even uh, live and worship in an orderly manner without many of these ordinances. And we could cite many, many other examples. There are many such ordinances which are necessary. This is the point, in fact, of having a church order or a church constitution or or that sort of thing. Uh, Rules which maintain the body of Christ as it exists on earth. But the Confession doesn't simply acknowledge the need for such rules and then go on to the next subject. In fact, the main point of this article is not the necessity of such rules, but the main point of of this article is that even in the making of such ordinances as these, the elders must follow biblical principles. And what the Confession does here in the article is lay out... Biblical principles for the establishment of such ordinances. And I think we may identify three different rules that the Confession lays out here in this article. The first is what we read in the uh, fourth line, fourth and fifth lines of the article. They ought studiously to take care that they do not depart from those things which Christ, our only Master, has instituted. They ought studiously to take care that they do not depart from those things which Christ, our only Master, has instituted. That is, it is possible in the making of such rules to come into conflict with biblical principles for the regulation of the life of the Church. And the elders have a responsibility to be very, very careful, studiously to take care that in the making of these human ordinances, which are necessary for the life of the church, they do not come into conflict with biblical principles and biblical teaching. It's easy, for example, for a rule that looks okay in the beginning to have unintended consequences. We even sometimes in the civil sphere talk about the law of unintended consequences. And it may be necessary, therefore, for the elders after making an ordinance to uh, review it after some time has passed and to look and see whether that ordinance has somehow, in some way, caused conflict with the ordinances of Christ himself what Christ himself has instituted for his church. or it's easy also, I think, for uh, uh, such ordinances to continue to develop over relatively long periods of time into unbiblical patterns. And to uh, then result, not immediately, but in years later, to um, come into conflict with the scriptures because of the way that the church has let these rules, these ordinances, develop in the life of the congregation. Or it may be that such ordinances multiply to such an extent that sight is lost of the ordinances of Christ, and the whole attention of the church becomes focused on obedience to the rules of men rather than the rules of Christ himself. So the officers have to studiously take care that these ordinances do not depart from those things which Christ has instituted, that they do not come into conflict, in other words, with biblical principles. That's the first rule that has to be applied to all such ordinances. The second rule which the Confession mentions is that these rules must not bind and compel the conscience. We reject all human inventions and all laws which man would introduce into the worship of God, thereby to bind and compel the conscience in any manner, whatever. We may cite in this uh, context the Judaizers' rule about circumcision. Paul was not absolutely opposed to circumcising people. He himself circumcised Timothy to pave the way for his work among the Jews of that time, undoubtedly. But what the apostle was opposed to was making circumcision a rule to bind the consciences of men. That is, a rule which could not be changed and a rule, obedience to which was necessary for salvation. This is what happened with the Judaizers. They came and they said to the Gentiles, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul uh, vehemently rejected that kind of thing. That kind of rule has no place in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. You must not become bound by such rules because then you fall into the error of works righteousness, of salvation by works rather than salvation by faith. And I I think that's a a good warning for us to uh, take into account too because it happens sometimes in the history of the church that the traditions of the church take on this kind of force, the force of being absolute rule, or they are elevated to the same level as scriptural teaching and scriptural principles. People become so attached to these traditions, or these traditions are so old in the life of the church, or these traditions are considered so important by the uh, people of the church, that they refuse to consider the possibility that there could be any change whatsoever to these rules. And they may even despise others who have a different practice as if their way of doing things is the best and the only right way to do them. And the way that anybody else does it has to be, because it's different from theirs, has to be wrong. These rules must not bind the conscience as if they were necessary for salvation, or as if they were the only possible way to serve God. I think the confession here has in mind the many, many ordinances of the Church of Rome that did exactly that. They bound the consciences of the people of God. The extra sacraments besides the Lord's Supper and Baptism the necessity of making confession to a priest once per year, the rites surrounding the Eucharist and the Mass, besides the idolatry involved with them, were rules that were made binding on the consciences of the saints, the veneration of saints, the celibacy of the clergy, no meat on Fridays, the church calendar and special days, and and rule after rule after rule after rule. The Roman Church had established And had established as necessary for the people of God to observe. They were binding the consciences of the people of God by their human ordinances. The confession in this article is particularly concerned, I think, about these such ordinances in the worship of the church. We reject all human inventions and all laws which man would introduce into the worship of God. And again, because of what the Church of Rome had done. The Church of Rome had established so many ordinances for the worship of God that it was impossible for the people of God to worship him according to the simple ways laid out in the scriptures. In fact, it was almost impossible, I think, for them to hear the gospel because of all the ordinances which the Roman Church had established. The scriptures, as we've already pointed out, lay out certain principles for worship. And we must be careful to adhere to those principles which the scriptures lay out. And we must be very careful indeed not to add to the worship of God human inventions Ceremonies invented by humans. Things which we think are nice or beneficial or whatever. We have to adhere strictly and carefully to the rules which Christ himself has laid out. Why? Because there is such an inclination in the heart of man towards idolatry and image worship. This, the rules that Christ has instituted Guard us against those things. Paul talks about this matter of worship also in Colossians chapter 2. And I think it would be beneficial to us to look at the verses, to read those verses in Colossians 2, which pertain to these uh, human ordinances. Colossians 2, verses 16 to 23. You'll notice immediately at the beginning of this passage that Paul has in mind particularly Jewish ceremonies, Old Testament things. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come but the substances of Christ. He's here making the point that those ceremonies have been fulfilled in Christ, their substance has come. We're not, therefore, to let anyone judge us with regard to them. We're not to let the Judaizers impose their ceremonies upon us. Let no one cheat you of your reward. And here he has in mind the same principle, I think, that he laid out in uh, Galatians, that if you follow these ordinances as being Bound to them, conscience bound to them. You are falling into the error of works righteousness, and works righteousness will cheat you of your reward. Taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Notice that commandments and doctrines of men Don't be conscience-bound by the commandments and doctrines of men. These things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. He even acknowledges that these ordinances of men often have an appearance of wisdom and may seem to us like they're the best thing to be done. And this appearance of wisdom may be, first of all, that there's a, a certain religious or pious character to these ordinances. And we look at them and we say, well, that's, that's wonderful. That's, that's great. Look how people are showing their piety by these things. Look how they submit to these, all these ordinances simply for the sake of Christ. Well, there's a humility manifest in them. Or there's in them a neglect of the body. This is another thing that's often appealing to us as people, as Christians, that there is in the neglect of the body some sort of spiritual value in that. So he's talking about this appearance of wisdom, and he says, really, it's an appearance of wisdom. It's not wisdom... Itself, These things are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Or in 1 Corinthians 8, where the apostle talks about food sacrificed to idols. And he says, if you go and buy meat in the marketplace, don't ask whether it's been offered to idols or not. Just buy it and go and eat it and don't worry about it all things are God's and you receive it from the hand of God and can use it properly in your Christian walk don't worry about whether it's been sacrificed to idols or not an idol is nothing in this world he does also say be careful of the conscience to your brother, of your brother but we'll get to that in a moment in Romans chapter 14 he makes the same point again we can look there at that passage too Romans chapter 14, first of all, in verses 2 and 3. For one who believes he may eat all things, one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. So you have this differences. One has this ordinance for his life, I may eat all things. Another has this ordinance, I may eat only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat despise Judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another one's servant? Servant. To his own master he stands or falls. Or in verses 5 and 6, that's with regard to food. Verses 5 and 6, with regard to days. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day... To the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. So there can be differences of practice in these matters. And we should not judge one another. We should not exalt these traditions and these ordinances and these practices to the level of scriptural teaching, to the level of scriptural rules. The traditions and ordinances of men do not achieve that kind of importance. So that's the second rule. These rules must not be allowed to bind the conscience as if this is the only way for things to be done. And then the third place, the Confession says that the rulers of the church should admit only of that which tends to nourish and preserve concord and unity and to keep all men in obedience to God. In other words, don't let these rules multiply unnecessarily. Admit only of that which tends to nourish and preserve concord and unity and to keep all men in obedience to God. And I think we may add in regard to that, we must also be careful about causing others to stumble, especially causing offense to a weak brother's conscience. It is possible for these traditions and these rules to cause offense, that is to cause another Christian to stumble because of his weakness. And we should guard against causing that kind of offense in these things. We should be willing to change our rules if it's necessary for the sake of another's conscience. They're not, after all, scriptural principles, scriptural rules. They are simply ordinances which we established for the nourishment and preservation of unity. So those are the three principles then that the confession talks about here. Do not depart from the word of God. Do not bind the conscience. Admit only of what tends to preserve and nourish unity. Now there's one other matter which the confession touches on and it may be rather um, a striking thing at first that the confession says this. At the end of this article about human ordinances, it says, For the preservation of concord and unity and to keep all men in obedience to God, for this purpose, excommunication or church discipline is requisite with all that pertains to it according to the word of God. Now the confession is taking something there that's very important in the life of the church. That third mark of the church, excommunication or church discipline, which we discussed in Article 29, I think it was. It stands alongside the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. We may speak of this as the third key of the kingdom, also alongside the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments, or the third means of grace, alongside the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. It's a very important matter. Christ has given to the elders the authority to excommunicate. And he even said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The church has to have the authority to um, exclude from the membership of the church and from the table of the Lord those who remain unrepentant in their sins. And this is partly to keep the church from just reproach by wicked men. But what the confession is saying here, and what it ought to strike us very forcibly, is that it's sometimes necessary to use that authority of Christian discipline and institution of Christ himself in connection with these human ordinances And we may say, whoa, wait a minute, how can that be? Well, if we think about it, I think we will see what the confession means. Let's say, for example, that there's a member of the congregation who says to the elders of the church, you've established as the times of worship 10 o'clock and 6 o'clock. But that's not a scriptural rule, and so I'm going to worship at 9 o'clock in the morning and at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. What he's basically saying, of course, is I'm not not just, I'm not going to obey your rule because it's a human rule, but I'm not going to gather with the congregation at its times. So the point, I think, here is not that he's breaking the human rule, but that by Insisting that he will practice his own rules in this regard, he is breaking the scriptural rule. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. He has to, if he's going to obey the scriptural command, he has to submit also to the ordinance of the elders in this regard. And if he doesn't, it becomes a matter of church discipline. Not because the rule of the elders about times of worship is so important, but because of the fundamental rule, you must not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Or let's say that he refuses to meet with the elders according to the rule of the family visitation that they've established, or he refuses to allow the elders into his home, or to ask questions about his spiritual life. He's denying the elders the authority that Christ has given to him. And discipline has to be exercised. Or he says, I don't like your rules for uh, appointing, electing and appointing officers in the church, and I'm going to do it this way instead. My rule is just as good as your rule. When he does that, of course, he creates disorder and strife and confusion in the church, and he may need to be disciplined for doing it. Or even more importantly, we sometimes see, I think, that a, a Christian man insists on the practice of his own liberty regardless of the consciences of his weaker brethren. He says, Christ has made me free I can eat meat sacrificed to idols, I can do this and I can do that. He may be right in all of these things. There may be nothing in Scripture that prevents him from doing these things. But he does them with a total disregard for the consciences of his weaker brothers. That may, too, become a matter of Christian discipline. Because of that basic rule that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. You must not cause your brother to stumble. Nevertheless, I think it's important also to add the caution here that the elders must be very careful not to force obedience to these ordinances unnecessarily. There are certain ordinances which the elders established which everyone needs to obey. But maybe in certain circumstances, the elders will say, well, let's reconsider that ordinance for the sake of the one who has a problem with it. Maybe we can make a change that will help. Or maybe they can say, at least in these circumstances, in this particular situation, we can let the rule be broken. We're not talking here about an ordinance of Christ. We're only talking about a human rule, a human ordinance so maybe the rule can be broken without disorder and disunity being the result so you have i think twofold responsibility in these matters on the one hand there's the responsibility of the rulers of the church which the confession outlines in those three principles that we talked about they must not be contrary to the ordinance of Christ they must not bind the conscience and they must be tend to the nourishment and preservation of concord and unity. But on the other hand, there is the need for the members of the church to be subject to those ordinances. And there is the need on the part of both to recognize that they can be changed. They are not sacrosanct. The elders must be willing to change and we must be willing to accept change even if we would prefer something else. And of course, everything must be done in love for the brothers. There must be regard for the consciences of the weak. There must be always in all things the edification of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. These rules then, if they are properly regarded, will nurture and encourage unity and the blessing of the congregation, rather than working against it. May God bless us with his word.